From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I have found, in many cases, deeper joy and more pervasive joy in in people in developing countries. As we look around, and it doesn't take long to realize that the wealthiest people, the the most famous people, are not necessarily the most joyful people. Sometimes it's the most humble people who have learned to live with and come to appreciate the small things in life and give gratitude for, for the lives that they do encounter. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with the Reverend Daniel J. Denk. He's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. He's directed ministry with university students in the United States, as well as 19 countries in Eastern Europe. He's ministered in 45 countries around the world, and he has served as theological director with InterVarsity. Today, we're talking about his recent book, An Invitation to Joy, The Divine Journey to Human Flourishing. Daniel J. Denk, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. It's good to be here. Well, it occurs to me we should start by doing what I call setting the table. So it's right there front and center on the cover of your book, this word joy. Let's start there. When we're talking about joy, what is it that we're talking about? And more importantly, what is it not that we're talking about? Right. Well, yeah, joy is is a little hard to define, just like try to define love or hope or one of the other types of words like that. I always say the thing about joy is you know it when you see it and you know when you feel it. And so on the one hand, even it's not easy to define, we don't want to over mystify it as though we really don't know what it is because I think we do know what it is. But yeah, having said that, I think joy on the one hand is a feeling, obviously, but it's Feelings are fleeting and feelings come and go. And joy, it seems to me, is something more steady, more sturdy, weightier. I think of it as as a deep-seated sense of well-being or a frame of mind or a state of mind. It's kind of a, a disposition toward life or an outlook on life. And so I would say, in a nutshell, from where I'm coming from, joy is a a kind of a hopeful, peaceful outlook on life and probably closely associated with a sense of contentment as well. And so that, yeah, that's kind of a start. Well, let me make sure that I've heard you correctly. So you've said that it's a feeling, but it's also, and forgive the Boston reference, it's more than a feeling. But you also said something like, we know it when we encounter it. And I want to dig into that because are you suggesting that part of being human is having some kind of hard wiring to be able to recognize joy, like it's a capacity that every person has, or are you suggesting that it's something that we learn and something that we develop as a habit over time? Like, how would you characterize it? Yes, I think that there is that hard wiring aspect to it. Frederick Beekner said joy is in our blood. I think it's something that people naturally long for, would like to have more of, and sometimes we've we look back at a time when we have felt more joyful and we know that there was more joy in our life. And now maybe we've lost it, lost that sense and trying to figure out what happened. So on the one hand, I think it's part of who we are as being human. Yes, I think it, it is. It's built into our humanity. At the same time, if we're asking the question, well, how, can, how do I get more joy? Or if I've lost it, how do I rediscover it? And I think there are things that we can do. There are ways that we can explore that. As I sometimes say, there are friends of joy and there are enemies of joy. And what I've written here is not a how-to book on how to find more happiness in your life. We've got plenty of those on the market already. But what this is, I think, is there, there are certain practices that we can bring into our life that can enhance joy and those that can really rob our joy. 
Well, and so if we're talking about joy and talking about something that, as Frederick Buechner said, is in our blood, it's distinct, though, from something like pleasure or happiness. Oh, I want to make sure that I've got this correct. So when we're talking about joy, we're not simply talking about self-serving ends. We're not simply talking about pleasuring ourselves, doing things to entertain and amuse ourselves. We're talking about something different. But help me and my listeners understand, why isn't it simply pleasure-seeking? Why isn't joy simply self-serving? Yeah, yeah, that's good. I think joy is always other others oriented. We're always says we're always joyful over something or over someone. And uh, pleasure seeking is very self-oriented, self-seeking. Yeah, certainly joy is more than just dopamine in the brain that is produced by happy by maybe drugs or sex or some other anticipation of bringing some good things into our life. Joy is deeper than that. It's more profound than that. It, so it's, it is different than pleasure. I, I would say that joy can be accompanied by pleasure, but pleasure, seeking pleasure will often actually kill our joy in some cases. And as far as happiness, sort of built into our constitution, isn't it? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the people, so that, that idea is certainly built into our way of thinking. But I think David Brooks suggests in his book, Second Mountain, some distinctions between joy and happiness. And happiness is more individual. It is, it is more dependent on circumstances and the happenings of life. And the word happiness actually goes back to the idea of hap or chance or things that happen that come into our life. And so in that sense, it's a little bit more fleeting and a little bit more fickle, perhaps, whereas joy is, it comes from offering our, ourselves and our gifts to other people. I mean, that, those are the things that really bring joy to us. Happiness is looking for circumstances that will make us feel happy. And based on more accomplishments, maybe, um, and so happiness comes and goes, it fades more quickly. To live in joy is to live in, in gratitude and wonder and hope and in generosity toward other people. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Daniel J. Denk. He's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. He has directed ministry with university students in the United States, as well as 19 countries in Eastern Europe, and he has ministered in 45 countries around the world. He also served as theological director with InterVarsity. Today we're talking about his recent book, An Invitation to Joy, The Divine Journey to Human Flourishing. Well, we're really beginning to set the table here and trying to line out what joy is and what joy isn't. And now maybe we can turn to the kinds of people who are most likely to encounter joy. Okay, so is a person who is rich likely to be a joyous person? Is a person who is famous likely to be a joyous person? Or is that looking in the wrong direction? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about this and writing this, and I, I've done quite a bit of traveling at different countries around the world, and including Africa and Asia and Latin America. And um, one might think that, that the happiest people in the world are those who come from the more affluent cultures, the more affluent societies, and, and have all of the goodies of life. But in my experience, that's not the case. I have found, in many cases, deeper joy and more pervasive joy in, in people in developing countries than it often is the case in the affluent Western world. So to say who is more likely to have joy, I think as we look around, and it doesn't take long to realize that the wealthiest people, the, hap the most famous people are not necessarily the most joyful people. Sometimes it's the most humble people who have learned to live with and come to appreciate the small things in life and give gratitude for, for the lives that they do encounter. I'm so glad that you just made that move because this is something that comes out at several points in your book, An Invitation to Joy. The notion that joy is not a goal in and of itself, but rather that goal, that joy arises when we are pursuing certain other things or when we are aware of other things. And so you mentioned that joy is other-centered, but now you've also introduced this term gratitude. So help us to begin to think about the dynamics 
of joy. Like when we go chasing joy directly, it eludes us. But when we are doing other sorts of activities, joy can come to us. Help us to understand that dynamic. Right. Well, yeah. So I've said joy is a byproduct. You don't find joy by seeking joy. You find joy by seeking something else or seeking others and seeking. And so as a Christian, I would say, and also seeking God's kingdom and what Jesus came to offer joy to the world. Reminded of the book, C.S. Lewis wrote kind of his autobiography or his earlier years, Surprised by Joy, in which he was kind of coming out of a childhood that where his mother died at an early, when he was just a boy, and a lot of sadness and trying to discover joy and find joy. And in the end, he just says, well, I don't know what happened to my search for joy, but he obviously did find joy. And of course, in his encounter with people like Tolkien and and others at, at the university at Oxford came in, in contact with Christian people and Christian thinking. So yeah, I would say joy is a byproduct in a broad sense. It comes from giving of ourselves to others. It comes from a generous spirit, it comes from a grateful spirit. And uh, it, it's, it can be enhanced by certain practices in our life that can bring more joy to us. And you've just situated yourself in a very particular way. You've named that you come from a Christian tradition. I've mentioned at several points in introducing you that you are an ordained Presbyterian minister. And so let's begin to situate this joy as well in its religious context. So is there something specific about religious joy as opposed to what we might call secular joy? And is secular joy even a possibility in your understanding? Are people who have no contact with faith or the religious at all, and I'm not even talking about Christianity yet, but simply a distinction between secular persons and religious persons, can secular persons encounter the kind of joy that you're talking about? Yeah, certainly I would say that is the case, and it's not limited to Christians. I think there, there may be a different quality or a different capacity involved in, in, in Christian joy, but God's gifts by creation go apply to all people. And God's grace is very generous and very broad. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And so I think that, yes, indeed, joy is something that anyone can experience in applying this kind of giving and generous attitude toward life, toward other people. Making joy in other people is so often, I think, what we when we experience joy. I think there are some distinctions about Christian joy or the Christian aspect of joy that maybe bring us into a, a different dimension and a different ex experience of joy. Well, and as we're moving towards our first break, maybe we can go out on exactly this question. So if we're saying that any person can experience joy, that joy is an equal opportunity possibility, is there something distinct about the way that a Christian would experience joy? Is it heightened in some way, or is it augmented in some way, or is it simply a different species of the same genus? Right. Yeah, that's a good question, That. I would say it's certainly augmented and it takes on a different flavor. So we sing the Christmas carol, Joy to the World, and Jesus came to bring joy to the world. And so what is this joy? I think Jesus came for joy, for the joy of the world and to bring joy to all people. That, that was the announcement and his coming, right? That the angel said to the shepherds, Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. And so the author is there, Isaac Watts, famous uh, Christmas carol, which is the most published Christmas carol of all time now. Rejoice the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, is, is the message of that song. But there is a, a joy that, a deep joy that can come in serving other people. There's a deep joy that can come in worshiping the God who made us. And I would say at that point, then Christian joy or religious joy takes on a new dimension and a new flavor and, and potentially new heights in our worship of God for who he is. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Daniel J. Denk. He's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. He has directed ministry with university students in the United States, as well as 19 countries in Eastern Europe, and he's ministered in 45 countries around the world. He's also served as theological director with InterVarsity. Today, we're talking about his recent book, An Invitation to Joy, The Divine Journey to Human Flourishing. We'll be back in just a moment. 
Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Daniel J. Denk. He's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. He's directed ministry with university students in the United States, as well as 19 countries in Eastern Europe. And he has ministered in 45 countries around the world. He also served as theological director with InterVarsity. Today, we're talking about his recent book, An Invitation to Joy, The Divine Journey to Human Flourishing. So throughout your book, an invitation to joy, you give us some concrete examples of joyous persons. And I think one of the most counterintuitive examples would be a person who may be well-known in evangelical circles, but maybe not so well-known to my listening audience, and that's Johnny Erickson Tata. And I wonder if you'd be willing to tell us a little bit about Johnny Erickson Tata and also why you chose to include her specifically as an example or an exemplar, we might say, of joy in your book, An Invitation to Joy. Right. Yeah, well, especially as I come to discuss that, as we must ultimately discuss, what does joy mean in the context of a suffering world? And how do we frame the quest for joy and the desire for joy that's in all of our hearts in the midst of a suffering world. And clearly, the Christian joy and the joy that we're talking about is not a, a kind of thing that becomes oblivious or comes just out of being putting rose-colored glasses on and becoming oblivious to the suffering of the world and, and the, the fact that many people are in great pain and that there are atrocities going on and all of this sort of thing. And so... Johnny Erickson comes into play, especially with her statements that her accident, as many people know, she's written a great deal and her accident that left her paralyzed from the neck down, diving into the waters of Chesapeake Bay at age 17, I think it was, and just completely turned her life around. And rather than seeing that as just a tragic life-ending experience of her life. She sees it as God's work in her life to change a strong-willed, self-directed, dirty, self-directed, vain young woman into someone who is actually caring and loving and giving toward other people and turned her values around, turned her whole sense of what, what was really important in life around. And so her story and her testimony, which has been so meaningful to so many people, is one that has really gripped me. And, and uh, I, I hesitated to actually use her example because it's used so often. But I, as I continued to read her writings, I just thought, this is a woman who has really suffered deeply, who has thought deeply about the significance of it, of that and how joy enters in, and who has come to a great maturity in the way she can communicate these things. So, yeah. But Johnny Erickson, if you watch any of her podcasts and website, you'll see a joy that permeates from her life, and, which has been not an easy life and one that has taught her many lessons. Yeah. Well, one thing that really struck me in your retelling of the situation with Johnny Erickson and the way in which her life and her suffering attach to your concepts of joy and I'd really like to ask you to unpack your understanding of this sentence with me and my listeners, because you quote a point where Johnny Erickson Tata says, listen, God has not healed me, but God still holds me. And I hope I've got the quote correct, or at least close enough. But if I don't, please correct me. But if that's close to what she said, can you help us to understand what that means? Because she's paralyzed. Clearly, she has prayed for healing at certain points in her life, and God has chosen not to respond to that 
I would imagine, very earnest and repeated plea. But yet there still is a conviction there. There still is a sense in which she has a relationship with God. I'd love if you could help us to deepen that and understand how you take that phrase to mean. Yeah, I think God, God still holds me. So I think in that sense, she would say that Jesus is with me. God is with me. God is walking with me through this experience. God, God is a suffering God. God went this way before me, and Jesus went this way before me, and he understands the suffering. He's, he is the great, my great friend and high priest who, who, who sympathizes with my suffering and knows, understands my weakness and can deliver me in different ways from not just healing me, but deliver me mentally and my outlook toward these things so that I can be a very productive person. Of course, she has been. She's spent her life, Johnny and friends, providing for wheelchairs around the world and and trying to implement government policies and the laws that will enhance the well-being of people with disabilities. And that's been her whole life mission. And so she has had a remarkable impact. And I think so so when she says God has not healed me, she's speaking back, but many of her well-meaning friends after this accident said, Johnny, the real reason you're not healed is you don't have enough faith. And if you only had more faith, then God would heal you. But so she's saying, no, God is with me. God has been with me. She went through a time of bitterness and really struggling with coming to grips with this. But then she came to a place of realizing God's presence with her was really the most important thing in her life. And she, I couldn't say this, but she says, I thank God every day for this accident that happened to me. And I think, how can anyone come to that place in their lives? Because we just see this tragic loss and an awful thing. But when you look at her life and see how God has used her in remarkable ways, she's she's an artist. You may have seen pictures of her painting with her mouth, a, a paintbrush in her mouth. She is a Reported many songs and albums, and as I say, she's ministered to people with disabilities around the world. So I think that's part of what she means. I'm not sure for those of us standing outside of that experience, if we'll ever really understand what all that she's saying when she says those things. You just did something twice in that answer that I want to circle back to because I think it's so significant and it's worth exploring in and of itself. You said listen, she has said this, I could not ever imagine saying this for her. But she says that she thanks God every day for the accident that left her in a wheelchair, only able to move from the neck up. And I really want to explore that dynamic because I think so often we can see particularly Christians, maybe well-meaning Christians, who step into the breach of someone else's suffering and try to re-narrate that suffering for them. And what I'm hearing you saying is we should resist doing that. We should resist putting the bright spin on some situation that we're observing from the outside. What I'm hearing you saying is that a person within the suffering can speak hope, but we don't necessarily get to speak or tell the story for the other person. Did I hear that correctly, or would you say that in a different way. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I think only she or someone who has had that experience can speak, can interpret their own experience in that way. I think what I'm, what I've come, the reason that I wanted to appeal to Johnny Erickson's story is because so often I, when people uh, come to grips with suffering and joy and suffering. They just think of the absurdity and the injustice of it all. And and I think we should be careful not to gain our philosophy about suffering and joy from what I call the armchair philosopher sitting in their Ivy League office. That's not the one that we should seek to learn from about the meaning of suffering and the experience of suffering or joy. But someone who is really been through it with someone like Johnny Erickson, who has really experienced it. Talk to those who have really suffered deeply and been able to somehow come through that with a deeper understanding and a greater appreciation for the life that they are now living. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Daniel J. Denk. He's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, and he has directed ministry with university students in the United States as well as 19 countries in Eastern Europe, and he's ministered in 45 countries around the world. He's also served as theological director with InterVarsity. Today we're talking about his recent book, An Invitation to Joy, The Divine Journey to Human Flourishing. Something that is really becoming very clear to me in this conversation, and I glimpsed pieces of it in your book, An Invitation to Joy as well, is that when we're talking about joy, we're not coupling that to something that is psychological, and we're not coupling it to something that is physical. Let me explain what I mean. Because if I'm understanding you correctly, a person could feel sadness and also simultaneously feel the gratitude that leads to joy. A person, and we just used the example of Johnny Erickson Tata, a person could have tremendous physical disability, pain, and suffering, and yet still be a person that we would describe as joyous. So it's decoupled from the physical and the psychological. Have I understood that correctly, or would you say that in a different way? Yeah, I think, Joey, speaking from my own experience, when I sat down to write this book, I was in a place where I had been diagnosed with bladder cancer and my wife had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And so it was not a time when I was looking at the world and life through rose-colored glasses. And since that time, my wife has passed away and it's a huge loss and a, a lot of sorrow and grieving. And at the same time, I have to say, I'm grieving it's tears intermingled with laughter. It's tears intermingled with joy. It's looking at the wonderful memories and the grace of God in our lives that we had together. So, yeah, I think that joy and sadness, the opposite of joy is not sorrow and sadness or suffering. The opposite of joy is really despair and hopelessness. That's what steals our joy. And, and what I'm discovering in my own personal experience now is that that yes, joy is still very real in my life and in the lives of others that I know who have experienced great loss in life and is still a very, very important part. As I began to think about this and get challenged about the idea of joy in doing a pretty thorough biblical study because of who I am, that was a part of that process. One, one notices very quickly that joy and suffering or joy and sorrow often appear side by side in both the Old and New Testament. And he has turned my morning into dancing. And sorrow comes in the evening, but joy in the morning. Or, or James in the New Testament, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of many times. It's, you read that and you think, whoa, wait a minute. How can, this, how can these be side by side? How can these be come together? And yet, that's the truth of it. And that's, that has been the experience of someone like Johnny Erickson it's been my own experience since I have walked through the kind of suffering and loss that we've experienced. And, and so, yeah, joy is not, as I say, not the, op the opposite of joy is not suffering and sorrow. It's hopelessness and despair. Before we go on, I just want to take a moment and first of all, express on behalf of my listeners and myself, my deepest condolences for your loss and also my gratitude for you trusting me and my listeners with this part of your journey. Thank you for that. To continue with this line of thinking then, in addition to thinking about joy versus suffering or joy versus pain, I also want to ask now about joy versus depression. And if we think about depression as a psychological state where the person encountering it cannot feel hope and cannot basically see a world where the connections lead to a better tomorrow, is depression a kind of opposite of joy as well? Or would you be hesitant to make that kind of dynamic a part of your analysis? Yeah, and I do state in the book that I don't want to be misunderstood since I do believe and understand that depression is a clinical description of someone where there's a chemical imbalance and where therapy is needed and perhaps prescription is needed to, to deal with that. And so I don't deny that at all. And I have a very close friends that have gone through those very dark times in, in their life. And I understand that is a reality and that's true. And so when I say most of the things that I'm saying, it, it is not, it's not to in any way 
disregard the reality of depression as a clinical issue that needs to be treated. What I'm speaking to really mostly is just the weary world. People are, most people are just tired, weary. Maybe they've had really hard things happen in their life and they they feel a little bit battle-worn and, and just tired and just maybe wondering, will I ever come to a place of joy in my life again? Is this the way it's going to be? Or people who, for whom life has just become pretty humdrum, it's dull, it's boring, it's there's not much excitement there anymore. So that's, I think, the majority of people and that I'm talking to and not to the person in, in serious clinical depression. And I so appreciate your willingness to let me go at this question in so many different ways. And this is the last layer I want to put on this because it sounds to me as if you're saying that when we encounter joyous people, we're not necessarily encountering happy people. And I want to make sure that I've heard that correctly, that in your analysis, it is possible to be experiencing joy even when you're not experiencing happiness. Have I heard that correctly? Yes, I think so. Yeah, unfortunately, happiness, I mentioned in the book, the, the movie Pursuit of Happiness with, with uh, Will Smith and his son in real life. And they're down and outers and they're they're eating in soup kitchens and they're sleeping in flop houses and trying to find their way out of that. And the solution in that story, in that movie, unfortunately, is they strike it rich and they suddenly becomes a successful stockbroker in, in the finance market. And so that changes their whole life around and that's the answer and that's happiness. So that's that's not the same as joy. Joy is, is a different idea than that. And joy is what the Bible speaks of as shalom. It's a sense of well-being. It's a sense of coming to a place of a generous, giving outlook toward life, toward other people. And and I would say add to that, and from my own perspective, coming into a, a deep and living relationship with the God who made you, I think. And yeah. What a beautiful thing to bring in at this point of this conversation, this idea of shalom. And for my listeners who are unfamiliar with, this is oftentimes translated as peace, but it's not simply just peace with myself, but it's peace with others. It's dynamic and it requires relationships. So you're you're pushing us once again back into this notion that we are never joyous alone. We are joyous with others and in, in right relationship to others and in right relationship to, for those that believe this, the God that creates created us. Am I hearing that dynamic correctly as well? That's right. Yeah. It's always in community. We were, I think we were made for relationship. Life is all about relationships and joy comes in, in, in those relationships and especially the meaningful ones. And I think we find joy in being around people that there are people who just bring joy into our life, who are life-giving. There are things in life that are life-giving for us and pursuing those things are the things we ought to do more often. If I love to be outside and being outside brings me joy, then why don't I do it more often? And so on. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Daniel J. Denk. He is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, and he has directed ministry with university students in the United States, as well as in 19 countries in Eastern Europe. He's ministered in 45 countries around the world as well. He also served as theological director with InterVarsity. Today, we're talking about his recent book, An Invitation to Joy, The Divine Journey to Human Flourishing. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Daniel J. Denk. He's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, and he's directed ministry with university students in the United States, as well as 19 countries in Eastern Europe. He's ministered in 45 countries around the world, and he's also served as theological director with the organization InterVarsity. Today, we're talking about his recent book, An Invitation to Joy, The Divine Journey to Human Flourishing. 
Well, earlier in our conversation and at several points during your book, An Invitation to Joy, you mention a particular scholar, Miroslav Volf, and the work that he is doing around the idea of human flourishing. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about Volf's work and why you found that useful to your project here in your book, An Invitation to Joy. Yeah, Miroslav Wolf is someone I've, well, I've read some of his other books, Exclusion and Embrace, and others that he's, he's written. And then I learned about this project that he was engaged in at the Yale Divinity School, especially in Yale University, uh, kind of a joy and human flourishing project where he's been bringing scholars and people from different walks of life together to have conferences and symposiums on the topic of joy and human flourishing, and even teaching some courses at, at Yale on uh, like one course they taught was, what is it that makes life worth living? And I just thought, well, that's great. That's a great question to be asking it in a secular university kind of context where the humanities are no longer flourishing like they once did. And uh, technology and science seems to be the rule and business. And so to be offering a class like that, that seemed to create a lot of interest among students. What is it that makes life worth living is one way that they're getting at this subject of joy, human flourishing. And then his book by that topic, by that topic is one that was really formative and foundational for my own thinking as I pursued this kind of invitation to joy. But yeah, I've really admired what they're doing. They have been delving into this topic in some good ways and bringing different scholars together from philosophers and pastoral psychology people and different uh, people from different areas. And one of the, uh, he did, taught at first course with Angela Williams, I think it was, uh, on, the, on this, what is it makes life worth living? And uh, one of the things that she says is, don't give up on joy. You may have had some really hard things come up into your life, and she had some really hard things come into her life, kind of a one, two, three, wham thing, kind of experience. And yet the call is, to, is not to give up on joy because joy is what we were made for. Joy is what brings us into the greatest experience that we life has to offer. But in our secular society, the problem is that the loss of transcendence, the loss of interest in the spiritual aspects of life, and loss of meaning it have had, had its impact on our cultural society and the ability or the capacity. One of the one of his one of his writers talks about this concern that people are losing their capacity for joy. And, and it's partly the loss of meaning, but partly also the fact that there are endless distractions available to us at our fingertips that keep us from actually delving into any question or any deeper thought for any length of time. And so I found that to be really helpful and a, and a, a real concern as well. I really appreciate how you've just beautifully set up my next question, because throughout this conversation, you've been very patient as I've been bracketing out the fact that you are a Christian minister and that this book has been written in a very Christian paradigm. But now you've introduced it. So Miroslav Wolf at Yale Divinity School, even though it's a divinity school, you, as you noted, it still is a secular context in which these questions are being asked. But your your idea here and the way that you are presenting this is that there's something peculiar and rich in the Christian tradition that allows us to begin to develop, to use your phrase from a moment ago, this capacity for joy. And so I'd really like to invite you now, the brackets are off, the floodgates are open, help us now to understand how you see Christianity as a particular vehicle for helping us to deepen our capacities for joy. Right. Yes. Well, I think that, uh, as I said, I think that uh, the Old Testament is full of joy. One of the things that I discovered in, in looking, trying to figure out what the Bible has to say about joy is it says a lot. It has a lot to say about joy. And I looked at the Old Testament and the Hebrew literature, the Hebrew poetry is just an invitation to joy. It's like we have all these references to the trees clap their hands, the hills and the valleys leap for joy, the babbling brook is la lasting with joy. It's all of these references. And the psalmists and the prophets really come back to that again and again. It's just those of old, the whole created world is calling out to say, hey, we're caught up in this dance of joy. And to you people out there, 
what's wrong with you? Don't you get it? Don't you get that the whole creation is caught up in the laughter and the dance of joy and you're oblivious to this? And so it's an invitation to join the dance. And then when you come into the New Testament, as Jürgen Moltmann says, the New Testament or the Christianity is a religion of joy. The New Testament is the most joyful book ever written. And it's Jesus who comes to bring joy to the world. And if you look at his life, and the people he interacted with, everyone went away, almost everyone went away more joyful. Now, the religious rulers were not particularly joyful about him. They were not happy with what he was doing and what he was saying. And it was so revolutionary to to organize the organized religion of that day. And, you know, Jesus, uh, what he, the people that he encountered uh, went away joyful. He set them, not only did he heal them and sometimes deliver them from evil forces, he he also delivered them from their own selfish perspective. You know, when you look at Zacchaeus, the tax collector who has been living off, getting rich off of other people's poverty and taxes his whole life, just one encounter with Jesus, and it turns his life around. And he says that this man is set free from his own selfish ambitions and his own patterns of, of living and, and his responses, I'm going to pay back anything, everything that I've ever taken from people fourfold. And Jesus says at that point, salvation has come to this house. And so, you know, you have the one, exa- the one exception is the rich young ruler who says, one away sad, because Jesus said, you know, sell all you have and give to the poor, which is a, another whole story and sermon in of itself. But you know, he went away sad because he couldn't comprehend the great gift that Jesus was offering him. I, I remember hearing the story of, uh, I grew up in Chicago also and born and raised there, but heard a man who was looking for a handout from a member of the Jesus community in Chicago some years ago. And the man, not knowing who he was, the man in the Jesus community said, well, I can give you a few dollars, or if you come with me, I can give you, bring you to a place where you can have food and shelter and a warm, accepting, uh, supportive Christian community for the rest of your life. And the man couldn't fathom what he was being offered and so took the few dollars. But yeah, Jesus came to bring joy to the world. And I think that there's a certain joy that comes from understanding that he came with a message of repentance and a message of the kingdom offering a new kind of kingdom, a joyful kingdom, a loving kingdom, a kingdom of kindness and the meaning and depth and of life and all of its fullness. He, Jesus said to his disciples, my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. People don't often, I think of Jesus as a joyful person, or that's not maybe the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Jesus, but apparently he was and he had joy and he was giving that joy to other people. As I'm listening to your response, and thank you for giving us the that expansive response about both the Old and New Testament, I was reminded of something that I had heard my old teacher, Walter Bergerman, say at various points. And one of, one of the things that he did when he looked at the book of Psalms was he said, we can split the Psalms into sort of three different types. One is like the first psalm, the righteous are like trees planted by water and they will flourish. But then we encounter some psalms that say, I've been righteous, and yet I see the evil are flourishing and I'm not flourishing. What's going on? And a sort of doubt of God, a sort of disorientation about the way that God has ordered the universe. And then Bergman goes on and says, but there's a third kind of psalm that says, even though I'm looking at disordered things, I will yet praise the God that made me. And what I'm hearing you saying, if I'm hearing it correctly, is when we're talking about this movement to joy, whether we're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, we're really looking at that consciousness that can even look at disorder and suffering and say, and yet I will praise, and yet I will believe, and yet. Now, am I getting that correctly, or would you put it, the emphasis in a different place here? Yeah, no, that's right. I think and the Psalms, are, again, the, the Bible is very honest about pain and suffering and, you know, in that all is not well in the world. And about, I think, 60% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, uh, but they're not just lament. They're almost every time there is that, and yet I will praise him. That's like Job's son, so he slay me, yet while I praise him. And so even the Psalms of lament, I think they're important because it reminds us that God is is very much in touch with and tune with the fact that we lament and that life is hard. Life is difficult. 
and and we become weary and sometimes want to give up. But but yet the, there's that. Yet will I praise Him. Yet will I trust in Him because I remember His goodness, God's goodness, God's graciousness, God's gifts, and remembering. I think is an important part of coming to a different perspective on our struggles and our trials and life. I'm curious because this is part of the editorial process by which any book comes into the world. At some point, someone in that chain of conversations looked at you and said, Pastor Dank, who do you think the audience for this book is? And so I'm going to ask you a version of that question. Do you hope that the person who this book will most fall into the hands of is a person who is currently in a state of despair and suffering, and therefore they will find some hope in your book and maybe return themselves to a path of joy? Or would you be more satisfied if a self-aggrandizing person who thinks that they're untouchable encountered your book and it pierced their armor and allowed them to see that they too were vulnerable to hopelessness and despair and that they needed to begin practicing the habits of joy even now in their comfort. And that may be a question where you have thought of an entirely different audience, but if you're willing to entertain at least my hypothetical here, who of those two audiences would you more hope this book would be encountered by? Yeah, well, that's a good question. On the one hand, yeah. It, it is going to be a both-end answer, but on the one hand, I do hope that it will bring comfort and reassurance and hope to people who are suffering greatly right now, And because I can speak out of that suffering as well myself, and, and I hope that would be the case. But I spent my whole life in the university world as in campus ministry, working in the secular university world, talking to students who are often very skeptical and very closed off to the idea of anything transcendent or anything of a spiritual nature. And I understand that world, and I understand people coming from that. And I, I also understand that the, a title of a book like this can be off-putting from the very start. Was, is this really, is this guy really for this? You know, is this really possible? And I think that, so for the second kind of person who is really just pretty self-assured and think that they have got all I put together and don't need any anything else, I would say, yes, yes, but reconsider. Please reconsider. Re, please think about the possibility that there may be more to life than you've discovered so far. And that's not to discount what you have discovered. But Jesus in his life often paused and just looked at the crowds of people that at some points were following him because of his miracles. And this says he had compassion on them and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he so longed to be that shepherd for them and to bring them to a new height and a new level of understanding and experience in life. And so often, I mean, like he says, I came to bring life in all of its fullness. And this is this, what we call human flourishing. Then maybe there's something or the second kind of person that you're missing. Maybe you're starting missing something that's very important. And that could bring you to a whole new level of joy and meaning and experience in a fullness of life. And I think Jesus sometimes was baffled by the kind of existence that people were settling for and settling for so little when he's offering you a holiday at the sea and yet people are playing in the mud puddles in the city and and missing out on the sheer joy, fullness of life that God is offering to them. I want to ask you one more question about audience, because as I read your book, An Invitation to Joy, I was aware at several points that I was an American reading this book, and I was a comfortable American reading this book. But I was constantly thinking to myself that you have had ministry work in 19 different countries and have had a professional footprint in 45 different countries. And so you may think of the audience for this book slightly differently and with a perspective that I don't share. And so I'm wondering, do you think that this is primarily a book for Americans? Or would you see that this book would be equally useful in some of the other national situations that you have observed, maybe ones with a great deal more extremity than we encounter here in America? And if it's universal, great. If it's not universal, if this is specifically a book for Americans, what would you change in order to make this reach other nations and other readers who maybe wouldn't have the American context? Yeah, 
I have spent a lot of time with international people of all different nations that you suggested that one, one of the endorsements of my book is from Patricia Jaba Wesley from Liberia, who's suffered in the civil war that went on in Liberia some time ago and came to this country and actually lived with us for six months. Her family lived with us for six months. So we had that experience. So yeah, I think in kind of bouncing these ideas off of people from different parts of the world, um, I think that it does resonate. And I think that it does have a, a more universal meaning and appeal. I think what's American are the illustrations that I use. And so some illustrations might not translate into other cultures. But the principles of what brings joy into our lives and how we come to a place of human flourishing, I think are universal and are not uh, particularly limited to the what America or the Western world. Well, Pastor Daniel J. Dank, I want to say, first of all, just an acknowledgement that you have been very forthcoming in this conversation about your own journey with suffering and grief, in addition to all of the abstract questions that I've asked you. And I just want to say again how much I appreciate that trust and I appreciate that forthrightness. I also want to express my gratitude for the time that you took to write this book, An Invitation to Joy, because you gathered examples and you gathered resources from such a wide variety of different locations. I found it incredibly informative and it really opened up my thinking about this subject in ways that I hadn't thought about before. But I also want to thank you for taking time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking today with Daniel J. Denk. He's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. He's directed ministry with university students in the United States, as well as in 19 countries in Eastern Europe, and has ministered in 45 countries around the world. He's also served as theological director with InterVarsity. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, An Invitation to Joy, The Divine Journey to Human Flourishing. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.